Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of I Hate It Here, the podcast where I share and discuss challenges we're facing at work and how to create work cultures that employees actually enjoy. I'm your host, Hibi Youssef, and I'm the founder of I Hate It Here, a newsletter, podcast, and event brand that focuses on how HR and people leaders can build and support world-class employee experiences and overcome the many challenges we face at work. Joining me today and my co-host for two episodes in this special series about your relationship with work is Dave. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm the CEO of a venture-backed startup based in New York called Newsstand. We help companies produce better employee experiences. Super excited to be with Heba today. Yeah, we're pumped to be reunited, back together. The band is all here together for another edition. I can't believe they let us back on the mic. It's dangerous. I know. Who knows what I might say? Something unhinged, probably. Um, I want to kick off today's episode with talking about the longest relationship I've ever been in. And spoiler alert, it's not a romantic one. It's my relationship with work. Dave, how's your relationship with work? Problematic, but enjoyable. <laughs> I always say ups and downs. It's never just great. There's always something that's like not great about it. Yeah, it's problematic but enjoyable because I think your your point around the longest relationship. I've been working full time since I was fourteen, and so I don't even- actually remember what it's like not to be working. Yeah, that's wild. My first job, I was sixteen. I folded T-shirts at the Old Navy, all because I wanted to buy an iPod, and my parents would not buy it for me. They were like, "You got to get a job," and since then, it's all been downhill. Fun fact about work, did you know that the average person is going to spend 90,000 hours at work? By choice? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we have to. How else am I going to pay for my shoes, okay? But it's one third of your lifetime is spent at work. I think when we think about the relationship with work, the kind of time horizon we take is usually short. So when you think about it in an aggregate, it is a meaningful and material part of your overall lifespan. Yeah, I mean, there's no social security for my generation, right? I'm going to work until I retire or die. Depends on how you vote. See, (laughs) how I vote. We are, this is not a political podcast as much as I would love for it to be. What, when I think about work and our relationship with work, always at the root of it is power. Who has it and who doesn't? And like companies I've loved working at and I've just had a great time, I feel like there's been a decent power balance between like what the employees want and what the employer's willing to give. But we've kind of seen this like swing back in the last three years with the pandemic and where we currently stand with the economy. Like, who has the power now? I think it's fluctuating. Through the pandemic, it certainly skewed more in favor of the employees. I think it's fluctuating back. I think in our last session, we called it reversion to the mean, where, you know, at different times and different periods, swings in one direction, swings in another. And now I think because of the global macro environment, the state of the world and how things have really evolved in a rapid pace, like we're being pulled back a bit. And so that power imbalance, you know, what you mentioned, like when it's going well, the power is evenly distributed. I think about it as the organization is congruent, like what it's trying to do, its objectives is aligned directly with the folks that work there and their objectives. And right now where it's incongruent. You know, you talk about increasing revenues, increasing profitability at the same time that we're all worried about a recession. There's just a level of inconsistency in communication and the state of the the state of, you know, our working world that it's causing a lot of friction. 
in 2021, I remember like I was giving offers to employees to join me at a previous company and they, the offers were just wild. Like they could ask for whatever they wanted. And ultimately I still had to say yes, because we needed talent so badly. And it felt like for like a decent six to 12 months, the employees controlled everything, every want they had, every need. Like it was on me as the HR leader to fulfill those. And I could not say no. But now it feels like everyone's saying no to everything. Yeah, we've been one of the only organizations that we know of that's hiring. And I will tell you that over the last six months, we've gone, and this is without any promotion, any advertising, anything along those lines, you know, average job applicant, let's say on LinkedIn is, let's say in the hundreds, now it's in the thousands. And I think it's just reflective of what we're seeing out in the world where that power imbalance has shifted again. It's like permeated into every industry. And I feel like employees actually don't feel safe. And so work has become this like weird relationship where it's like, I might hate it here, but I'm forced to be here because what's out there is not much better. Yeah. It's also that the way that we're working has changed and there's a lot of uncertainty. And so if you've kind of settled into a routine that, you know, whether or not you like working in that, in the, at that company, they support, you know, you don't know what you're going to get on the other side anymore. You don't know if you're going to get flexible work. You don't know if you're going to get structured hybrid. You don't know if you're going to get the right tools. Maybe you work on Notion and in the next place they work on Airtable and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think the fact that everything is changing, not just where we're working, how we're working and why we're working, you know, it creates a, a lot of a lot of apprehension to make those moves that you may have been more comfortable with in the past. Yeah, there's like a new term I love when like the media is like quiet quitting and it just like terms this cute little thing that all of us are experiencing. It actually really annoys me. But there's this new one called like quiet staying or I can't remember what it's called where you like don't want to leave the job you have because it's like hybrid or remote and it's the thing you know because everyone else out there is either like returning to the office or they have a whole different set of tools like you said. So employees could be like unhappy, but they're staying at work because they don't want to leave. That could just be working, right? Yeah. Quiet staying. <laughs> quiet staying. It's actually called work. <laughs> what, what's the longest you've ever been at a job? Uh, Three years. That's not very long at all. I, I really like quitting things. <laughs> it's my number one piece of advice to anybody. I'm like, life is too short to be unhappy at a job. If you were unhappy, you should leave. And there used to be that standard where you had to be at a company for a year for like it to be socially acceptable for you to quit. But I think like Gen Z is really challenging that. And they're like, fuck that. Like I'm going to quit a job in three weeks if I'm not happy. And I like love that. But I grew up in like hustle culture. You grind it out. You stay. You chase the next promotion. And you have to do it. And it has to, your resume has to be like flawless. But it's very different now. That's not the case. It's definitely not the case. And there's just more options. Mm. Like it's not just the traditional step and ladder career path anymore. Yeah. Uh, you can go out on your own. We've seen over the last few years, the number of small businesses and the number of solo entrepreneurs grow exponentially. It's also one of the changes that you can say is affecting how we think about work. Yeah. My first job, let's say out of college, uh, I stayed there for 11 years. I don't know anybody that has done that recently. No. Um, and so- I think that evolution is one that also is affecting how people think about where they're choosing to work. And so if, if you're only going to stay at a job for two or three years, how do you decide when it's time to go and how do you decide when to settle in? And so I think that's why you're seeing 
these terms like quiet quitting or quiet staying, because when the market is great and there's lots of options, it enables that kind of velocity and, and kind of my, like velocity of migration effectively from company to company. When the economy is not great, that velocity goes down, but now you're at a company for longer than you've ever been before. And so like, what do yeah. you do? Hate it. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to have to ask somebody who's been somewhere 11 years because that's not me. I find it hard to commit to things for that long. It didn't necessarily feel long. I was there for 11 years. I had 12 different jobs. The, the company that I worked for before was Verizon. When you work in an organization like that, they encourage cross-functional leadership development. They encourage uh, the development of your management skills. They have effectively systems in place to support your growth because that's what was happening for you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, you know, I'm CEO of a startup now. We definitely don't have those systems in place to encourage somebody to grow with us. And that's not a fault of, of, of ours or anybody else in our position. It's just when you're an institution that has existed for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. you can have a long tail view on who you are and how you develop people and teams. I've worked at four different startups and I can tell you every startup I've worked at has not had that. So maybe if I went somewhere that was like more established or I've been around hundreds of years, maybe I would have stayed for the long haul. But I can't think of a single person in my life right now that has worked at a job longer than like five years. Well, now you know me. Yeah, there we go. 11 years. Wow. So the relationship day over day, was it a good one, a bad one? Depends. You know, this is, uh, we, we often talk about like how happy you are at work or your depth of engagement at, at work as like an end state. It's like yeah. you're either happy or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm happy when I'm in this meeting with these people. I mean, I, I'm less happy when I'm in that, that meeting with those people. And so, you know, I think it, it changed often and even today it changes very often. And I think that's also some of the stuff we're seeing with our customers, right? Like the depth of engagement fluctuates minute by minute, day by day. And we have like all of our systems that have been historically built at work have all been like moment in time systems. Performance management happens like biannually or annually. That's like one moment in time. And it's almost impossible to remember your performance as fluidly as it actually is. And that's like also my issue with tools that measure engagement is they usually measure them in a point in time. It's so like you caught me on a good day, my engagement is high. On a bad day, my engagement would be really low. But like there's no systems that really capture it day over day, which is truly when the changes are happening. It's like a preordained milestone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, your work is more than likely uh, planned out, but it's not necessarily aligned to a preordained calendar. If you're launching a, a major project, why isn't your appraisal conducted after that project launches yeah. to see, you know, how efficacious you are. And so like the, the way we think about employee development and professional development, it has to change. And the way we think about employee engagement has to change to your point. The way that we experience work is a daily experience. Yeah. And what ends up happening is, and we've done a lot of work, uh, customer journey work here, your daily experience at work creates a baseline of satisfaction. And so if your daily experience at work is positive, your baseline of satisfaction is higher so that when more notable or critical things happen at work, you're more likely to give your employer the benefit of the doubt. Mm, trust. Uh, there's, exactly, you establish trust. When the baseline is low, when notable or critical things happen to you at work, you have less trust and you 
move through the cycle of, is this somewhere where I want to work much quicker Yeah, uh, or much more quickly? So I think the idea that daily experience matters is something that we need to adopt as leaders of people across every organization uh, because that's how folks experience your company. Micro question, macro question. Like if you're looking across maybe like all people working, this is like a broad generalization. Would you say that the average employee actually trusts their employer or does not trust them? I'd say no, they don't. When you look at uh, proxy measures like employee engagement, between 60 and 70% of people have been disengaged at work for almost two decades. And there are many root causes to that number. Trust is certainly one of them. I have to believe that if the majority of people felt more trust with their employer, that number would be much lower. Because trust is the root of the manager and employee relationship. It is at the root of the employee's relationship with their colleagues and is at the root of their relationship with the company's mission and purpose. And so your lack of engagement or your perceived lack of engagement is directly correlated to the trust that you have with the organization. So I'm going to say no, but I don't think it's that also like that dire, mm. like everybody's hair is on fire and, you know, <laughs> like, I, I don't like think, the media would want us to. Play. I, exactly. I don't, I don't think it's that dire. I love how you started the pod. It's a relationship, right? Like you're choosing to work somewhere. They're choosing to work with you and relationships evolve over time and you need to invest in relationships. Uh, I call it making deposits in the bank, right? Mm -hmm. So that when you have to make a withdrawal, you know, you still have money left in the bank. And so relationships evolve over time, you know, you mature, you change how you perceive the world changes. And so I think we're in a place where we've all had this collective shared experience and it's forced us to think about things in a different way. And now we're trying to find homeostasis it's been interesting watching the power struggle over the last three years between like employer to employee and then like the swings in engagement and then also thinking about like trust and the troubles we're having at work every day. It's just been fascinating watching that because I think like the average person, we, we've talked about this, the average person feels stressed at work. Like 50% of people at work are stressed, experience daily stress. There are many effects of stress on, on your life. But while working, if you asked somebody, were you stressed out for most of yesterday, half of all people would tell you yes. Yeah, I'd say yes. Uh, I was definitely stressed out yesterday. <laughs> Normalized stress. I mean, it's just like, it's interesting looking at the macro world of like employee-employee relationships and how we're cultivating them and what we're doing, what we're not doing. Because I think most people in the past, right, they've like looked at generational differences where like in the past you worked at your job for 50 years and you just showed up and did everything like the boom, the baby boomer generation, I think had less expectations from their employer. And the more and more generations we have in the workplace, the expectation of what my employer is giving me as an employee has also changed, which like the relationship then at its core is changing as well. It's not necessarily generational anymore. It's also not even geographical. Mm -hmm. Um I, I can't remember the person right now, but there's a podcast from Ezra Klein's show that he used to do on Vox, and he was talking to an author who had written a book on status. And the thesis was, 
an attorney in Dallas, Texas, who visits Whole Foods, you know, goes to SoulCycle and makes $150,000 a year, has more in common with a school teacher in New York who does the same things than they do with a HVAC worker that makes $150,000 a year in Texas. Hmm. So the status and how we think about our lives and what we value has evolved so much that you know it crosses boundaries, it crosses generations, and it's not necessarily age-based or demographic-based, it's lifestyle-based now. Uh, because you can have any lifestyle you want, you can have the lifestyle you want in almost any geography. And so if you think about how that plays out at work, people value different things, yeah. have different lifestyles, we're smashing people together with the hope that there's serendipitous collisions, and sometimes it doesn't work. And so, you know, team composition and team dynamics really matter a lot in hiring, in team shaping and development. This kind of goes back to something we love to talk about. It requires really high level management uh, today Ooh. to effectively bring folks together. And, you know, we're, we're specifically talking about knowledge workers, right? Like I think it's safe to say there's also like loads of expectations on the impact you want to make, the way that you want to work, the things that the things that you're doing. And so like all of those, all of those things collide into one giant management problem. Yeah, we're really bad managers. Literally everyone. Everyone's a bad manager. I'm probably a bad manager, actually. I know I am sometimes. But it's it the job of management almost feels impossible. I could probably rant about this for like another six episodes, but management in its core is like we want you to guide and coach somebody. And also, we want you to do this work. So it's like you're driving work forward a lot of places. You're also then coaching a team to drive work forward. And then you have to give them feedback and development and growth and all of this everyday love and appreciation and recognition. And then also while balancing your full scope of work. And then maybe you're also a leader at the company. So you're also representing your leadership team. It's like a lot to ask of one person. It's the hardest job at any company. It's also proliferated a lot over the last... 15 years, the the rise of the management class. Yeah. I hate sports and military analogies at work. I'm going to make one, unfortunately. Uh, if you look at a, a sports team, there's one captain. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, and and it, it's because it's hard to be a leader. You know, for every 50 people on a football team, there's maybe five coaches. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we've kind of over-indexed on the management class over the past few years. And I think, you know, we may need a correction because it's actually very hard to be a leader. Yeah. That stat that your manager has a bigger impact on your mental health than your partner. You, This is like the, the, the partner, the person you live with. Like your whole life is intertwined from finances to romance, to family, to everything. Your manager has a bigger impact on your mental health than that person. If you looked at not your company today, but think about the company you used to work for. <laughs> yeah. Could you go with 50% less managers if you chose only the effective ones? Yes. That's interesting. I'm not saying we're going to fire all the managers. <laughs> what I'm saying is to be a leader is difficult and companies and other leaders need to pay it forward and teach people how to be more. And we need, you know, management practices you know, kind of from the 1950s are still the practices that we use today. You know, post-industrial revolution, the rise of GE, 
you know, these are all the practices that we're instituting today. Let's say servant leadership started in the late 90s, early 2000s, but there really hasn't been a revolution in management practices for a long time. And so I think we owe it all to each other to foster and, and better develop people leaders. Because unfortunately, the effect, to your point, is really material on the broad employee population. There's that the saying that like people quit managers, and I totally yeah, but I also kind of hate it because I also want to blame the employer because I'm like, no, I blame the person who let you be a manager in the first place. And people are so quick to say like, oh, my manager's toxic, or they're ruining my mental health, they're doing this, and me in HR, I'm like, well, why does that person get to be a manager then? And so like when you're thinking about all of our relationships with work, the many things that go into it from our engagement, the trust to our relationship with our manager, I still turn back to companies and employers and ask like, what are you doing to make this relationship better? Because I have a lot of low trust in companies in general, in their abilities to actually make work great. There's an aspect of self-directed and autonomous work that we've left behind over the, let's call it the last 20 or 30 years. And now everything is managed and project managed, mm. over-engineered in a really significant way. And if I thread the needle, I'm changing jobs every three years, different outcomes and objectives. Let's say I am in the manager class. I'm changing jobs every three years. Need to assimilate myself to that organization, yeah, and then adopt their work practices, style, their values, and then lead people. And let's say by the time that I'm really like well versed and effective, I'm now leaving to go to another organization and start over. Yeah, and so I, I think the the challenge is compound. I don't necessarily blame the organization exclusively. I think the organization has a responsibility to cultivate and develop folks. I also think like there's a, a focus on craft that exists in the, I'll call them the professions that doesn't exist broadly in uh, white collar work and knowledge work. So, you know, you will as an attorney or an accountant or even a professional consultant at this point, you spend time honing your craft. And I don't think we do that effectively in today's working world. No, like if I could just be a manager and not do my own self-directed work, I'd be the best freaking manager out there. I could just focus on that. I know all the things it takes to be a good manager. I think the average person does, but they're, they feel all this pressure from the weight of their like initiatives, the projects they have to do, uh, the expectations from their employers. And then they have to go around and like be that hype man for their team too. It's just a lot. Like it's, it's an impossible workload to manage. And so when people tell me they want to be managers, I truly ask them, like, really tell me why. And if they can't answer that question, I'm like, you don't do this job. It's, it feels impossible most days. And in that moment, right, a less mature HR leader or a less mature organizational leader will look at ways to turn that person into a manager, to retain them, to satisfy them, to grow the organization. And one of the most effective things that I've seen is effectively taking uh, like a jobs to be done framework and applying that to a role. Like, do I really need to hire this role? Yeah. Uh, do I really need a manager in this moment? What What are the actual jobs that need to be done? And if it doesn't pass that test, like you don't add the hire, you don't add the management hire, you don't add the individual hire. And 
it takes discipline to do that. And again, a less mature organization or leaders, they have challenges assessing whether or not you need that role. Yeah. I also think there's like that misconception, like a top individual contributor performer will be a top manager. And I'm like, can we please stop making high performers managers? Because a lot of times those high performers could just continue to perform as individual contributors and do a massive amount of work and have a huge impact on the company. And when you then path them to being a manager, you then just take away all the impact they could potentially have on the org. And maybe in their soul, they don't want to be a manager. The best organizations will cultivate that person individually, like in their discipline. Yeah. And have them grow through title and you know compensation, but not necessarily increase their scope, right? It, you know, now you need to have directs and things like that. And so, you know, adopting, let's call them individual contributor paths as well as management paths to senior levels is a, a best practice that I think folks should look at. Yeah. Then you let the person become the skilled craftsman at their very thing that they do then force them to be a manager, which requires like a high level of EQ, the ability to get feedback, all these things that like you don't inherently have. That's the other thing. Like none of us are just like inherently managers. It's not like a natural skill. You have to cultivate giving feedback. We're all like conflict diverse as human beings. Not a lot of people are like, I'm going to go give hard feedback. The reality is a lot of people will be like, I'm not going to say shit. Ultimately, if a manager's job is to maximize performance, not everybody can do that job. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm not capable of doing that job, honestly. Thank you. <laughs> I have moments. Um, today, we covered a wide range of things that could be impacting your employee's relationship with work. Next episode, we'll dive deep on some practical ways to build stronger relationships with your employees to handle some of these challenges. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.